Welcome to the Review to be Named podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. Today on the show, we're going to do our standard pop culture news roundup. We're going to talk about when it's time for TV shows to die, and we're going to return to the Rubinet Movie Club and discuss Upstream Color. Uh, so stick with us throughout the hour. I think it's going to be a good one. Uh, with me on the show today, we have Rachel. Hello. And Sam. Hello. It took a little while for Rachel to react there. Yeah, she was like, oh, do I have to speak? It's because I was just reading news that they have apparently officially cast the leads in the Fifty Shades of Grey movie. Uh, wow. Oh, damn. It was breaking news right here live on the Review Your Name podcast. <laughs> Which will surely be stale, old, and maybe false news by the time <laughs> yeah. you listen to this. When this uh, comes podcast. out somewhere between 24 hours and a week after we record this, based on, based <laughs> on our editing schedule, um, it will be old news. But for those of you listening to this... When we reported it, it was breaking. Rachel, why don't we go to you live at the scene? <laughs> well, according to People, um, as confirmed by a tweet by E.L. James, the author of the Fifty Shades novels, the leads in the movie will be played by Dakota Johnson and Carly, Charlie Hunman, who, um, Charlie Hunman at least, is like the super hot guy from Sons of Anarchy. He was just in Pacific Rim, yada, 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 yada. Um, Dakota Johnson is the daughter of actors Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith. She is a 23-year-old model-turned-actress who has been seen in The Social Network and the short-lived sitcom Ben and Kate. Oh, Ben and Kate, a sitcom I watched. And she will be playing Anastasia, the girl who enters into this incredibly just inappropriate and awful relationship. So good on you, Dakota. Can I just say that Charlie Hunnam was my least favorite part of Pacific Rim? You've said how, that at least three times in the podcast, and I've agreed with you all three times, but you are allowed to say it again. Uh, but I haven't seen Sons of Anarchy, so I don't know how good that is. Have you seen that, Rachel? Sons of Anarchy? No, no but it's been on my list to pick up, and I've heard pretty great things about it. Um, so, yeah, there's that. I, I, I think this is this is interesting. First of all, Dakota Johnson's going to have to go brunette for it. Oh, my God. <gasps> I have to say this is maybe my least favorite news story we have ever done. If, <laughs> we have stretched some things into news stories before that were not really news. So <laughs> thanks for that, Rach. Sorry. Is there, I mean, is, is there more to this story that we should discuss uh, besides that she's going to have to go brunette, a thing I did not know about and a thing I do not care about? Yeah, no, not really. It's just, I mean, this is sure to mark the beginning of an even more kind of rabid attraction to the movie now that it's actually getting super underway so we shall see i just think it's interesting especially considering that the books are basically twilight fan fiction they and, started that way right yeah, yeah and there was just an interest and actually you know not an interesting interview with stephanie meyer because god knows there's never been an interesting interview with that fucking vacant wow <laughs> mormons um this is a family podcast rachel that's a joke um, but, you know, she made a comment recently where she was just like, oh, my God, I'm so over the entire franchise and the entire like all of it. So I think it's interesting that this is bound to happen to this woman who writes these books and yada, yada, yada. Moving right along. All right. Let's go ahead and move along. If you as a listener care about Fifty Shades of Grey and want us to talk about every every news story as it develops in association with the adaptation of that book, please let us know, and Rachel will be in charge of that, and I'll try to act more interested when she talks about it. For now, um, why don't we move on and talk about uh, 
the fact that Bob Peterson is no longer directing The Good Dinosaur, uh, Pixar's next film, which is going to be released in, I think, like nine months. I think it's due next May. Um, he has been replaced by a rotating team of John Lasseter, Lee Unkrich, Mark Andrews, and Peter Sahn, which is basically like a lot of the perennial directors at Pixar and a lot of the super experienced directors that the studio has. Um, this is not all that unusual for a Pixar movie. Like, it's happened before fairly often. Um, and a lot of their movies have had multiple directors over their lifespan anyway. But it is sort of unusual for it to be happening this close to the film's release. So, Sam, what do you think about this? Well, I think what's really strange is that, and I think this is something Pixar kind of, I mean, Pixar has done similar things to this in the past, but that a movie is having goes from, I guess, two directors to three directors. Having two directors, I think, is pretty rare on its own. And I mean, I, I've, there, there are some, you know, notable exceptions in live action movies with, you know, directing teams. Um, but this is kind of unusual. I think Pixar has done this in the past, replacing directors. You know, for me, like when I hear this, it makes me kind of skeptical about like how a movie's going. And, you know, I usually I always have a lot of faith in Pixar, but this kind of worries me, even though I think, you know, movies like Up, you know, had or Ratatouille, I think uh, not Up, Ratatouille, I think had like a uh, director change, even though when they changed directors, they gave it to Brad Bird. So which is never a bad decision. No, I don't think it's really ever a bad decision to let Brad Bird direct your movie. Um, if Brad Bird offered to direct this podcast, I would walk away in a second. Yes. It would be it would be Brad Bird's rename podcast, and I would just it would be fine. It would be better. It would be a better yeah. show. <laughs> um, if if I have a question, if Brad Bird took over directing Lee Daniels the Butler, would it be Brad Bird's Lee Lee Daniels the Butler? Um, no, he would keep it as Lee Daniels the Butler out of respect. Directed uh, directed by Brad Bird. Right. It would be Lee Daniels. Sapphire. It would be Lee Daniels the Butler, a Brad Bird film based on the novel Pushed by Sapphire. Right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, um, it makes me a little bit worried about the good dinosaur, but um, you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to see it because it's a Pixar movie. So I am cautiously pessimistic. <laughs> a, a, a change from our normal cautious optimism that is our default our mode. Default setting to everything. Yep. Um. All right, Rachel, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I share I share a lot of Sam's concerns, especially reading a piece about it now. You know, like it says that the various directors are working on various sections of the film, and that just seems a little weird to me. You know, the idea of an animated film having multiple directors doesn't seem outrageous, considering how much there is to oversee. Um, but the the idea that they're each working on different sections seems strange, but. I don't know. It's Pixar. It's about dinosaurs. It's not cars. I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I would say my my hopes for the movie were were pretty high before this news, and I don't think they're much lower now. Um, like I said, Pixar has changed directors before. They've always, like, one of the big things that you hear out of Pixar when they discuss their movies is how collaborative the process is, how they're all sort of involved anyway. They all sort of listen to the script and help rewrite it and are there, you know, during pre-production. And I think probably really heavily involved throughout the production of the movies anyway. So I feel like 
him being replaced, I don't know what that says about what he was doing with the movie that was not liked by everyone else and if there were conflicts involved, but there's nothing that's been released on that. And the people whose hands the movie is going into were probably involved already and are excellent directors, and I'm excited to see uh, what they come up with. So I would say I am cautiously optimistic, unlike Sam's cautious pessimism. Uh, I think that this could be... I think this could be a great return to form for Pixar um, after a few years of things that I have either liked decently but not loved or just disliked outright. Um, yeah, so I would I would color myself as cautiously optimistic. With that, uh, any last thoughts on this before we move on to our next story? I'm more. I have no more thoughts. I'm more intrigued by the fact that apparently Lil Wayne is providing voice for this movie. I wanna, I wanna see. Lil what, Wayne has a very unique voice. I wanna see what kind of dinosaur has a Lil Wayne voice. I mean, probably uh, the Lil Wayne dinosaur. The Lil Wayne, the Wayneosaurus. <laughs> yeah, you don't remember that dinosaur? <laughs> Moving right along. Moving right along. Correct. Um, James Spader has been cast as Ultron in Avengers 2, Age of Ultron. Uh, he will be the villain. And he... So, for you two, who I think... Do either of you know who Ultron is? Nope. Chris will probably think whatever I say is infuriating. It's unfortunate that he could not be with us today, because I'm sure he would give a more cogent explanation of Ultron, since he knows far more than I do. But... Let's be real. It's Chris. It's Labor Day. He's in a drunken pile somewhere. I mean, he's at work, but he's probably still in a drunken pile somewhere. Um, hey, Chris. The, the cogent explanation that I would give is this. Ultron is a sentient computer created by uh, Hank Pym, who is, what, Giant Man and or Ant-Man, um, who wants to destroy the world. Also, there was a miniseries called Age of Ultron earlier this year, and it sucked. Um, there you go. That is my explanation. It may be wildly inaccurate. Um, but that's what I'm going with for the moment. James Spader is playing Ultron, this robot who will try to take over the world and fight the Avengers. Uh, thoughts on this, Rachel? I mean, I think it's interesting. Uh, I'm super stoked for any upcoming Avengers film, really. Uh, although... I believe that there's no Loki, which will make me super sad. Um, I mean, he can't be in all of the Avengers movies. Why not, is what I say. Why the hell not? But, I mean, um, I have I have some, some James Spader love. I think he's good. I think it's interesting, considering he has, like, a big-name pilot coming up this season. So the fact that he's signing on to a super huge franchise should be interesting for him. He's going to have a busy, busy time. The one where he plays Hannibal Lecter, but it's not really Hannibal Lecter because he doesn't eat people, but he's a criminal that the police use, and he's in a box. <laughs> yes, I believe it's called The Blacklist. Oh, right, and he has like a list of probably infinite criminals that he helps them catch, and that's a television premise. Yes. Nice. So uh, in terms of my thoughts on James Spader, is, is he going to, is are they going to use like, 
practical effects and like make him the robot or is he just going to voice some cgi monster i imagine it will be like paul bettany voicing uh jarvis in the iron man movies where it will be his voice and a robot well according to buzzfeed oh well hold the phone buzzfeed hold the phone um marvel's announcement said spader was playing ultron not voicing him which implies spader will be physically shooting the role via performance capture like mark ruffalo did with the Hulk in the Avengers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean he'll really be in it. It means James Spader is going to be wearing a green leotard with those balls on it. I'd like, I'd like if instead of uh, motion capturing him in, they put him in the motion capture suit and just leave it like that in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> is that like what are what are the chances of that happening? Are they are they super high? Because if not, then um, I need to start a letter writing campaign immediately. <laughs> It would, be, um, it would be a provocative move, I think. So my thoughts on James Spader, besides the fact that I think he should be in the motion capture suit, but not motion captured. Uh, I love James Spader. Uh, I was a huge fan of Boston Legal, even when it was a show that no one should really in their right mind have been a huge fan of, because I think James Spader is so goddamn charming. Um, I will probably watch The Blacklist. Uh, in fact, there's a chance that I will watch and review The Blacklist. Um just because James Spader is in it, not because I think it's going to be a good show. Um, Do you think James Spader, I feel like he's always played characters who are kind of, they're not necessarily like larger than life characters. They're, he plays them kind of close to the vest. He's not, I think he's a ham, but he's not, um, he's not, he's not like comic booky, you know? Yeah. I think, yeah, I, th- I would say, yeah, I would definitely say James Spader is uh, a hammy actor at times, but he always he always manages to pull it off. I think it's like, there's like a smarmy charm to the way that he hams that you're just like, I love this man, or at least I'm like that. I don't know, it'd be interesting to see him play uh, a robot villain. I, so, I'm not a huge fan of Ultron, as you may have got from my summary, though I haven't read, like, classic Ultron stories, like Chris might be able to talk about to have sold, to sell us on Ultron. Uh, that being said, this is a Joss Whedon written and directed movie starring all, all the people I liked in the first Avengers movie and starring an actor who I love as the villain. So despite my Ultron reservations, I would color myself excited. Well, I don't think there was any danger of people not going to see Avengers 2, I think. Yeah, we were, I mean, we were always going to see Avengers 2. Um, it's just a question of whether you are more, less, or the same amount of excited with James Spader attached. And I would say I am more excited. Uh, what about you two? I think he's a great actor. So um, I'm, I'm interested to see what he'll do. He definitely, if you, t- you know, asked me who should play the next villain in the Avengers movie, I don't think I would have even thought of James Spader. So it'll be interesting. He's a great actor, though, so I have confidence. Rachel? I don't, I don't think that it actually changes anything for me. I'm still super excited. I'm intrigued by the Spader casting, but I don't think it increases the likelihood that I will have gone salt to see the movie. Which is high, I assume, right? You were planning on seeing Avengers 2, or do you not care? Oh, no, I will most definitely be seeing it. Okay. I saw the first Avengers three times in theaters. Which I, I know, which is why for a second there when I thought you might not care to see Avengers 2, I was surprised. Oh, I care plenty. Mind you, like, I'm, I'm mad that there's no Loki. I'm, I'm not mad. I'm sad that there's no Loki <laughs> because I love Loki, but I, I'll get over it. 
Yeah, and you're going to get Loki in Thor 2 The Dark World. I know, but Thor 1 was so bad. But this one will have Christopher Eccleston. And it's called The Dark World. The Dark World. <laughs> and it will have Christopher Eccleston, which is enough to excite Sam and Jordan, if no one else. I, I love I, I I'm excited by that. I can tell by your voice. <laughs> uh, and Natalie Portman will be there, being Natalie Portman. Oh yeah. Oh. Well she was really the star of Yeah, the I I think she movie. was the linchpin to what worked or did not work <laughs> about uh Thor in your mind, so Yeah, I mean well her importance really shined through in the Avengers when they're like, Where'd she go? Eh, we put her on some island somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's on some island somewhere. No need to look at her. Yeah, it's like she probably won't die. I feel like that was one of those uh, continuity errors that everyone was just like, eh, fuck it. Because it's like, Thor is like, when I come back to the planet Earth, the first thing I will do is find you in, at the end of Thor. And they have a whole movie where he's like, I'm on Earth again. <laughs> I don't need to see Jane Foster at all. Well, you know, she'll she'll be back for the dark, the dark uh, world. I was about to say the Dark Knight, but wrong universe. Thor 2, The Dark Knight. <laughs> Maybe it's about, like, a dark night. Yeah, it's just, like, the, the night is super dark, but then yeah. the day comes. And yep. full of terrors. Mix all of the franchises. <laughs> oh, we are having fun. I think it's time to move on to our last news story so we can get into the meat. Uh, FX has announced that Paul Giamatti will be starring in Hoke, which is an adaptation of Charles Wilford's Hoke Mosley novels. Um... The show is going to take place in 1980s Miami. We'll have a quote-unquote darkly comic tone. In other words, it's going to be an FX show. Um, and Tumani <laughs> is apparently going to play Hoke as a hard-boiled and possibly insane detective. Again, it sounds like it's going to be an FX show. That being said, it's going to be an FX show starring Paul Giamatti. So, Rachel, thoughts on this? I can think of no place I find less appealing than a 1980s Miami. Uh, and how so, about like turn of the century Kansas? No, no, no. Uh, so I don't know. I, I I have basically no feelings about this. I like Paul Giamatti. I'm not as crazy about Paul Giamatti as I know you were, but I'm sure it'll be good. It's an FX show. FX shows are generally pretty good. I'm sure I'll get around to watching it eventually. I'm sure you will. I don't really have room in my life for another detective show, but that's cool. Yeah, there really isn't room in, I think, anyone who watches like a lot of television's life for another detective show. And yet, probably most of the people who say that will also watch this show. Yeah. Uh, myself included. Sam, thoughts on Hoke? Well, hopefully it's just it's not just another detective show, I think. Um, you know... Obviously, like, I, I hope that this is, like, a slam dunk. There's, of course, the possibility that it isn't great, even though I love Paul Giamatti. Um, he really, I think he's one of my favorite actors, really. Um, so I am definitely optimistic about the show, and I kind of, I, I, I kind of see his, his kind of energy working here. I, I can, I see cocaine in his future on this show. <laughs> um I think it could be really, really good. The problem is I don't really know anything about the novels. Um, so it's hard for me to get super excited because I don't really know much about the show and what the storylines are going to be like. Um, all, all, all this has really got going is it's an FX drama, which 
they're often good. And it has Paul Giamatti, who's pretty much always good. So I'm happy with that. But I look forward to finding out more. And I hope I hope it's it's offbeat enough to really separate itself from the amount of detective shows we've got going on right now. I think I, I think I misheard you because I think you said you hope when really clearly what you should have said is you hope that hope is awesome. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Goodbye, Jordan. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye forever. forever. Website <laughs> shuttered. Podcast canceled. Brad Bird coming in to take it over. Yeah. Only a lone gunshot is. The last <laughs> uh, I've been told by many people who know my taste in books that Wilford is an amazing writer and that I should read some of his stuff. I have not done that yet because I listen to no one who I trust. Um, trust no one. Remember that. Remember that, kids. That's that's the lesson of this podcast. You should trust no one. Uh, but I've heard good things. I'd like to say at some point I'll get to reading some of his books. Probably not before this becomes a television show, and I will definitely be watching that. Um, I think, Sam, what you said is exactly right. That from what I'm hearing of the show, which is not that much yet... I feel like it's going to play to Paul Giamatti's like, manic energy very well. Um, I can't think of a single Paul Giamatti performance that hasn't at least been interesting, including, uh, what is it, Big Trouble with Frankie Muniz? Yes, yeah. She was good in that movie, and like nothing in that movie is good. Well, so, does, does he try to like steal his like screenplay or something, or his book? I, I honestly don't remember the plot of that movie. I just remember it was like Paul Giamatti suffering a lot of indignities, and he still made it sort of plausible and interesting to watch. Yeah, find out. Please quickly find out the plot of Big Trouble, which I still think is the name of the well, movie. Big, well, Big Trouble is the Tim Allen movie. Okay, so is it something else Trouble? Something I'm going to look it up. I think it's something... Um, just a second. We will discover this, listeners. Don't worry. There is someone out there who is just... I think it's like Big Fat Liar, maybe? Yeah, Big Fat Liar. Is, I thought Big Fat Liar was something else. I guess not. No. No, Big Trouble is the Tim Allen movie based on the Dave Barry novel and nice. Big Fat Liar. After a young boy's school essay erroneously finds its way into the hands of a Hollywood producer who turns the idea into his, a hit film, <laughs> the boy travels to Los Angeles to claim his credit. I can't believe this didn't top all of our best films of the 2000s lists. Well, you know, it's where you get movies about intellectual property. So, So... Even in that, Paul Giamatti was good. This will be better than Big Fat Liar. <laughs> we don't know if he was good. I mean, when was the last time you saw Big Fat Liar? It came out in 2002, so you were probably uh, 14. Yeah. I remember seeing it in theaters. It starred Amanda Bynes and Frankie Muniz. I don't know that I saw it in theaters, actually. I think I saw it on home video, which, if it was 2002, might have even been a VHS still. Man. It Donald Faison and I Sandra O oh were in this movie. Wow. wow. So Sandra Oh and Paul Giamatti later reteamed in the equally as good movie Sideways. Yes. They were probably like, remember that time we were in Big Fat Liar together? And then they Sideways, laughed. Sideways was only uh, two years later. Yeah. Um, I think we are out of things to talk about with Hoke, and we have other things to talk about in other segments. Um, so I'm excited about Hoke. I'm going to go ahead and say we will tentatively talk about this on the podcast again. Uh my favorite thing about doing the new segments, by the way, is is me weighing in on the likelihood of us ever talking about the thing again on the podcast. So I hope you all enjoy that as much as I do. Um, I would say tentatively we'll probably talk about Hoke again, because I'm going to watch it. You're both going to watch it. Uh, so great. For now, 
Let's shut down the uh, old news roundup, and I'm going to kick things over to Rachel to discuss when it's time for TV shows to die. Rachel. Hello. Okay, so this is something that has come up for me recently because uh, Shonda Rhimes, who is the uh, tour de force, I suppose, for basically any successful show on ABC, um, including Grey's Anatomy and Scandal, had an interview relatively recently in which she said that Grey's Anatomy, which is now going into its 10th or maybe 11th season, I don't know, it was difficult to confirm, um, that Grey's Anatomy she could see going for many, many more years. Uh, And obviously 11 is many seasons. So (laughs) it got me thinking. This is a lesson with numbers from Rachel. Rachel on numbers, 11 is many. (laughs) And it's so many seasons, you guys. Like, honestly, though, what other shows do you know that have lasted 11 seasons? Cheers. Frasier. The Simpsons. Gunsmoke. Okay, well, ER. You didn't let me finish my sentence. Okay. South Park. <laughs> Please finish your sentence. Uh, no, I don't even want my sentence to finish anymore. Um, <laughs> so it got me thinking about, you know, when it time for shows to die um, and I think that it's this is an interesting like, like a, an interesting question especially now as we have you know Netflix picking up seasons of Arrested Development and the Veronica Mars Kickstarter movie and more and more films or more and more TV shows at least exploring hypothetically the idea of a movie um, and what that does to the to the demise of a series or the end of a series um, I'm interested to talk to both of you guys because I am apparently the only person left on the planet who does not watch Breaking Bad, but I'm interested because that's the big name series that's coming to a close this season. Um, When you think a show winds down correctly and when you think um, it extends too long, I suppose. Jordan, you want to take this first? Sure, absolutely. Um, So, I mean, if we're going to talk generally about shows, I would say there's a magic number in my head. Some shows manage to transcend it and go on further. Some shows are shorter and end perfectly. I think five seasons is the magic number. Um, I feel like if if you can divide your show into five acts, it usually ends perfectly. It usually does not overstay its welcome. And it has time to wrap up all the narratives it's been doing. Breaking Bad, even though it's fifth season split in half, is doing five seasons. And so far, is wrapping up incredibly well. Um, obviously, there are four episodes left. It could all explode and fall apart. But I, I don't think it will. Um, and I think it's going very well. The Wire had five seasons. And though its last season was kind of a mess, a lot of people will tell you it's the greatest show ever. Um, I feel like... I've, I've said this before, and I know we're going to talk about the show at some point, so I'll bring it up now. If How I Met Your Mother had been a five-season show, it would have been a great sitcom. It would be a sitcom that I would be talking about now, years after its ending, as uh, an example of a uh, great modern sitcom and a great modern multi-camera sitcom. <laughs> Aren't we still talking about it, though? Instead, it lasted years and years and years and years too long, got terrible, and now I, like, I will finish watching the show because I hate myself, but I will probably never return to it. Uh, or at least not to its later seasons, as I would have had it ended greatly. So when it's time for shows to die, I would say that depends on the show. But if I had to pick a random number for every show, I would say five seasons. Um, and we can get into some specifics about shows that have gone on too long and shows that have ended perfectly as we go. Um, but Sam, I want to kick it to you for a minute first. 
Well, I think five is kind of like this nebulous thing that I think a lot of people have agreed on as being like a good number of seasons. But I think um, usually with really, really good shows, you find that they they pick an end point because I think usually the people who run them have a, have an understanding about, you know, you know, the, the, it might not have been such a good idea for The Sopranos to go 10 seasons, even though it might still have been popular because the people writing the show kind of know how much they have left in them in terms of stories um, or how much they have left in terms of the character arc. So I think you find, you know, some of the really, really great shows, even if they're popular, they kind of know when to end because they, you know, they've displayed that kind of uh, knowledge earlier in the show. So, um, so with a show like Breaking Bad this season, it's been, very very popular actually like the ratings have done really really well and if it was a different type of show maybe they would say like oh my god we're getting good ratings now we should have another season let's do this let's not you know end it i think you know breaking bad is the type of show where it's like nope we picked an ending the story's over it's over it's done and it kind of saves its legacy and i think it's more concerned with its quote legacy um but there's some shows you know people talk about the simpsons you know should have ended the thing is with a show like the simpsons um one it's it's a show that stayed on because it stayed profitable and two it's not a it's not it's a it's just you know very episodic there's there's no like giant arc for a story to end so basically go go as long as basically as people can tell stories when you find when you have problems, you you have problems with shows like How I Met Your Mother, where it's a show that has an arc and there is like a story going through it, and and when a show's like, well, we can stay we can stay uh, profitable and keep just keep going and going and not have a end point in sight, that creates issues because you kind of run out of things to talk about at a certain point. You can't keep talking about Ted trying to find the mother or Ted, you know, finally sitting down and saying now's the time I'm going to just find the mother or Ted sitting down saying, I'm not going to look for the mother right now. I'm going to just do my wacky stuff. So I think you find the best, the best shows often, I think kind of just know that they can't go much longer than five seasons. If they even want to go five seasons. Um, so yeah, smart, smart showrunners know that, uh, shows that have like a certain story to tell or a certain character arc to tell, they can't go on that long. Right. I, I think uh, another great example within this d- discussion is Dexter, a show that also probably would have been great if it had gone for five seasons um, and is in the middle of what it's ninth, eighth season now. Um, Dexter? I have no idea. I, uh, I've, I no longer watch the show. I finally gave up on it uh, after the Colin Hanks, uh, James Earl Jones season. But James that's Earl a show. Jones was on the season? James, not James Earl Jones. Um, Edward James Olmos. I don't know how I made that error. They're basically the same guy. Yeah, they're the same guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think Dexter, like, I was not a huge fan of the Jimmy Smith season, season three of Dexter, but I think the uh, John Lithgow season was amazing. And had the next season of the show been its final season and been going into the end game, I think Dexter probably would have been uh, another landmark show. But it's a show that had uh, a high concept premise that had sort of a shelf life and that outlived that shelf life. 
I definitely agree. I st- I also stopped watching Dexter after a couple of seasons because it was just getting to be entirely too much for me to handle. Um, I think it's probably gone on much too long, and I'm glad it's ending. I guess that recently there have been a number of shows where it's been like that show needs to be put out of its misery, and it has thankfully ended, although a couple of seasons too long. Um, what immediately jumps out to me is The Office, which I think is an interesting case study in that um, – the British always seem to be quite good at chopping off seasons when they need to, or chopping off shows when they need to be um, to maintain story integrity, maybe even earlier than many people would want. Um, so you, when you have The Office and you compare the fact that the UK office had ran for two seasons and the US ran for nine. Um, and I have strong opinions about which is the better of the two. <laughs> I think a lot of people do, but even if you were a fan of, I, I personally was a big fan of the U.S. Office early on, but the later seasons got really painful. Um, the last two seasons being close to unbearable for me personally. Um, I know a lot of people stopped watching, um, and it's kind of just disappointing when you have a series that grows into something that people love so much, but. Um, I think that it does a huge disservice to the characters to keep them running along um, when you wish they would go away. I think that somebody who's particularly bad at this is J.J. Abrams. I think he gets lost in his own premise. Uh, I see what you did there. He gets lost in his own premise. Yes, he does. Um, Hopefully he won't do that again. (laughs) Oh my God, you're the worst. Uh, But yeah, I think that it's, Especially with a lot of a, a lot of shows recently, and I, I said this like two years ago, where a lot of new shows that are starting up seem to be shows that shouldn't be lasting that long based right. on their initial premise, but that are being kind of drawn out. And this is something that kind of intrigues me. And as these kind of shows get in get start getting up there in terms of the number of seasons, I'm I'm interested to see where like, I don't know that any of them do. I feel like we talked we talked about this before in terms of shows that should be movies instead. Uh, the example that I can think of off the top of my head, I haven't seen the pilot yet, so this might change, but uh, the new Tony Collette, uh, Dylan McDermott show, Hostages, I feel like that's a movie. I don't feel like that's a TV show. Um, but have any of those TV shows that you think should be movies instead actually made it to a second season? Because I feel like most of the ones I've said that about get canceled. Well, I mean, American Horror Story is going into its second. But that, it's that's going into its it's third, right? But it's also, it's turned itself into an anthology series, so... True. That's a show that I feel like kind of is really difficult to put in any sort of box. Um, so, yeah, I guess a lot of the... I know that the following got picked up for a second season, did it not? It did get picked up for a second season. That one will be interesting to see, though. After, as you know, after tr- having tried to watch that show, I literally couldn't... I couldn't get myself through the entire first season. It was so terrible, so... I will not be watching season two. But you can report back on whether the following is good in season two, because you seem to think it was decent in season one. Well, it definitely got a little iffy at the end there. Um, But considering how they ended it, not to spoil it for anybody, considering how they ended it, um, I see why they did it the way that they did in terms of it being a radical, there's going to have to be a radical reapproach to the second season. Um, But that just bothers me. 
it just seems so unnatural. Um, and what sucks is that like for every single show that goes on way too long, there are about four or five, I feel that you wish would go on for a long time and something that, um, but that then get cut off. And one of them, Jordan, I know that you had a lot of feelings about this show. I haven't gotten into it yet, but I've heard really great things. Enlightened. Yes. Which picked up a lot of critical praise but was shuttered after what one or two seasons, seasons? Uh, it, had, it had two seasons um and fortunately it got to have like an ending um because just because of the way the story was structured but it was not supposed to end after two seasons it should have gone on longer yeah so i don't know sam do you feel what shows for you are ones that you think could have gone on longer everybody's got them Oh, I mean, a bunch. Uh, the one that I always think about is Freaks and Geeks, which just had just one season and not much of an audience. Um, I think that's the big, like the big one season wonder. It's it's funny that you would bring that one up because I know everyone is always sad that Freaks and Geeks got canceled, and I loved that show. But I feel like if it had gone on. They were all going to be seniors, so it had maybe had a great second season in it, and then it was going to have to deal with the college thing. Um, and that usually tanks high school set shows at least for a little while, if not yeah. forever. So I'm actually, of all the one-season wonders, that's one that I might be okay being one season because it's a phenomenal season of TV, and uh, it doesn't have to deal with the problems of the fact that it's a show set in high school. I think it would have been good in the second season. Oh, I would, yeah. I mean, I, I would rather have had a second season, but maybe just a second season. What about a movie? Do you think that's a viable movie property? I'm kind of done with all these people who are like, we need to do a movie of it. Let's get a movie. <laughs> like, we want a Buffy movie now. Buffy ended too soon in 2007. Yeah, I, I, I think there are there are some shows that might benefit from a movie, but I the trend is not something I'm a huge fan of. And also, I think some of the shows that are trying to do movies, I think both Arrested Development and Veronica Mars uh play better as TV shows. And while I am excited to see the Veronica Mars movie and, you know, should there be an Arrested Development movie, as Mitch Hurwitz continues to claim there will be, I will see that. I feel like the strengths of those shows are televisual um, and in the time they have to lay out their their worlds and their jokes. So I feel like for the most part, TV shows becoming movies is not a good idea. Yeah, but I feel like it's the go-to thing for fans. They're just like, that's what they shout from the... You know, that's what they shout on the internet. They're like, we need to have a movie now. Let's make a movie. Especially for shows that end too soon, it is this kind of idea that you'll get some closure. I don't think that that's always the case. Um, I just don't, personally, I'll see an Arrested Development movie. I'm sure we'll talk about it a million times. I just, I'm very concerned that that would translate. One that I think could potentially translate, but that isn't going to happen based on news that broke last week, or news in air quotes, um, that broke last week is a Friday Night Night Lights movie, which obviously started as a movie property or started as a book and then moved to a movie property, then went to TV. Um, but Where's our Friday Night Lights musical? <laughs> That'd be fun. Last week, Kyle Chandler, who of course plays Mike, uh, said that he would not want to come back for a movie, which basically means it won't happen. Um, which I think you can do a Friday night like Friday Night Lights movie without Coach, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> it would be terrible. 
But no, I'm glad that he kind of put the kibosh on that because I think that that, yes, I feel like that's probably a show that ended too soon. I would have loved to have seen more of it because I just loved it. But I think that it it ended gracefully. Um, oh, yeah, I think it was time for that show to end when it ended. I th- I'm totally okay with Friday Night Lights being over. I mean... As you both know, and I think our listeners know, I have not watched Friday Night Lights yet. Really? Should Jordan. So I'm okay with it being over in that regard. <laughs> um, but I have not watched it. I will watch it someday. I'm sure I will enjoy it. For <laughs> now, I can't comment on whether it ended when it should have. Yeah, I think the big thing with shows ending is, you know, whether or not they're given enough space to end and wind down and give the sense of, you know, completion, um, which unfortunately a lot of shows that we all love hadn't been given the chance to do. I think that's why so many people scream out movie, movie, movie now. Um, But I, I wish that, you know, television producers and executives would take to heart a little more the idea of killing your darlings. Um, I think that in the long run, it really hurts your character. It makes me sad. I don't know about you guys. Um, I don't I like the problem is that it's always going to be a business and you're always going to have people like Carter uh, and Craig of How I Met Your Mother who realize how much more money they can make by keeping their show their hit show on the air for seasons and seasons and seasons so i mean obviously you also have artists who are more interested in their show as a piece of art but it's a business so you're gonna have people who treat it like a business um and i get that even though it's disappointing uh at this point i think we should wrap up the segment uh did you have any last thoughts sam nope rachel nope all right, well, why don't we move on? We are now returning to the Name Movie Club uh, for a discussion of Upstream Color. Sam, why don't you start us off on this? Sure. It wasn't my, wasn't it Chris's pick? It was Chris's pick, but... Oh, well, we he's did, dead to it's, us. This, this pod, it's, it's confusing, but we haven't been able to get all of us in a room together for a while because we're so busy and amazing and popular. Um, but... I'm handing it off to you for the moment. Chris, I apologize. You will get to host Sam's next pick or something. That's not fair at all. (laughs) You're punishing me for being around, it sounds like. Yeah, that's my plan. Okay. So uh, where to start with Upstream Caller? Well, I I usually start with what did everybody think of the movie, but Rachel didn't watch it because Rachel's terrible. Okay, so what did Jordan and Sam think of the movie? Yeah, sure. Jordan, what did you think of the movie? I loved the movie. Um, obviously, I'll at this point, I'll give my standard. We will not spoil first, then we will spoil eventually. So for the moment, I'm going to talk in broad forms. If you haven't seen Upstream Color, you should go watch it um, and then come back and listen to this. If you have, you're safe for the moment, and I'll let you know when to skip ahead. Um, I I loved Upstream Color. I think it's, uh, it's the second film by Shane Carruth who did Primer, another movie that I love. Um, and I think... In a lot of ways, it's similar, but in a lot of important ways, it's very different. And I think most of the uh, ways that it's different are improvements uh, on Primer. I think this is a great second feature. I think it's a beautiful movie um, and a really moving movie. So I loved it. What did you think? Um, I thought it was just okay. 
I mean, it's also a movie that, like, it felt, it was, like, really frustrating to me at times. I thought the editing was, like, very oppressive, the quick cuts. Um, I think that was, you know, obviously it was a, a choice he made, and I think it was kind of meant to be kind of frustrating to put you in the mindset um, of these characters. But just, like, as a viewer for me, it was just, like, it was, it was like, work to watch. Especially since it was it was weird that the movie it, it seemed so confusing and so dense, um, but then when I was looking up like when I was reading about the movie afterward online, I actually didn't really miss anything, which I think is kind of a tribute to the movie actually, um, because it seems like so damn confusing the entire time. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Um, so like, I guess there's like. Um, he should get a lot of credit for being able to tell this very, very complicated, uh, weird sci-fi story um, in such a way where it feels kind of disjointed at times because, you know, it deals a lot with, uh, you know, people losing their memory and people being on these weird, these weird drug trips. Um, but it, it, it was like, I thought it was an interesting movie, but ultimately not a movie that I would want to sit down and watch again. It's funny that you mention uh, the editing particularly as a problem because I was telling Rachel earlier when I thought she was going to have watched the movie before we discussed it, um, the editor of Upstream Color is Is the director of David Lowry uh, or the – no, wait, um, cinematographer. I'm sorry, not the editor. Uh, David Lowry just directed Ain't Them Body Saints, which Rachel and I both saw recently and both loved. Well, Shane Carruth also gets an editing credit on this, I think. Yeah. Um, Shane Carruth does a little bit of everything and in Upstream Color so in Primer I think he wrote directed edited like everything in Upstream he also Color, did the music I was going to say he added yeah he added did he do the music for Primer as well uh, I, I know he I did assume, I assume, for yeah. Color yeah um, but Shane Carruth is kind of a, a wonder kind in that way he basically makes movies for no money and does everything with them um, and some we need, we need someone like Megan Ellison to throw this man a pile of money because He's making great movies for nothing, and just imagine what he could do on a budget. Maybe he doesn't want a budget. Maybe he doesn't, but it took him nine years between Primer and Upstream Color, so I imagine if someone would give him a little funding, he might be able to make movies faster. Although, who knows? Maybe he's, you know, like Terrence Malick, which I think is another touchstone that Upstream Color, maybe we can discuss for a minute, is I think it... it, stylistically it looks a lot like a Malick film in a lot of ways. It's got this sort of reverence for nature and this sort I of... I don't, though, because I think if you want to talk about... Uh, well, certainly not with Primer, but Primer was, like, shot for, like, $100. Right. But I think with with Upstream Color, I think Terrence Malick is much more interested in, like, lingering on, on like, beautiful shots. And I think up, Upstream Color was, I think, purposefully trying to kind of shake the viewer because it's kind of this traumatic experience I think these characters are going through. And I feel like in um, at least the few Terrence Malick movies I've seen, he's like very big on lingering on like these like beautiful pastoral scenes. So in that, I would agree with you, but I feel like narratively as well, upstream color mirrors Malick's sort of dreamlike approach to, to, especially the dreamlike approach of his last few movies to filmmaking, just in terms of like, you never really settle in either movie, uh, in in you know a Malick movie into a particular narrative. It's always sort of like fragments of thoughts and fragments of memories. Um, and I think Upstream Color does something similar to that very well. And I also think you're right that 
that the editing and that the the way it approaches nature is supposed to be a little bit jarring. But I think that Upstream Color is a movie that does that does have a reverence for nature and for like the way that life evolves and the symbiotic relationship between you know like a lot of ecosystems. Um, which sounds really boring as I say it, but I promise that the movie is not boring. Or did you find it boring? Because I know you you did not think it was as good as I like uh, as I think it is. Um, I think it was boring. I don't know if I'd say it was boring. I think it was just like frustrating at times. Um, because I was definitely like captivated by it. And part of that, it, it, it was definitely like an engrossing movie. But, um, I felt it just at times, it, it just wants to be difficult to be difficult because, you know, explaining things is too easy, I think. And that's kind of what, what, um, primer was like but i felt me personally i felt more of a connection to the characters in primer than i did in this um because i think this movie is about like the connection between these two people and like how circumstances have brought them together and how they're just like they're connected by things greater than them like weird forces but it but i also like it i feel like it stripped away their humanity to some degree like it was about it was about the relationship rather than about the people. And I feel like in, in primer, it was about these two people whose lives were kind of being like torn apart by this invention that they've stumbled upon. So I didn't, I didn't feel a connection to these characters as much as like real human people. I found, I found their connection more just interesting. That's interesting because I feel like, um, I cared less about the characters in Primer. I felt like Primer, it did have characters that were that felt real to me, but I felt like Primer was more of a uh, film that was interested in the plot mechanics. I feel like he, like I feel like Shane Carruth knew with Primer he didn't have the money to make a, a movie that was going to look great, so he spent a lot of time making a movie that was really like the script was really good for that movie, and the plot. I think the plot mechanics were the ultimate focus of Primer, where I felt like Upstream Color was much more emotionally resonant. I feel like. I connected to both the characters a lot more, and I felt really emotionally invested in them. Um, yeah, I, I on that, I, I think you and I will just have to disagree, because I uh, loved both of these characters, and I thought the movie... I thought the way that the movie uh, was edited and the way that it was shot actually put me in their headspace very well, which is a bit of a disturbing place to be for a lot of the movie, but uh, I thought it was it was very effective at doing that. Yeah, well, I think the movie definitely put me in their headspace, but the problem is it's like... The movie mostly takes place after they've been through. I, I guess I can't. We're not really spoiling anything. We'll get, but they've yeah, been through we'll this get thing. spoilers in a minute. <laughs> but the thing is, it's like it's mostly about them dealing with this problem. This is a pain in the ass not to talk about it. Um, but um, I like I never really connected with them as like human beings. It, I felt like the movie was about them like dealing with their their issues and dealing with their past together and how that connects them. But as like human beings, like I, like I didn't like see anything in, in that. I, I can see, I can see where you're coming from on that because I do feel like the characters are, are more vaguely drawn. Um, and that's actually another reason why the, the film does remind me of a lot of Terrence Malick's work where I feel like uh, you don't so much have characters in, in a lot of Malick's films as archetypes. You have people who, who have to serve certain thematic uh, and really more thematic than plot-based. But you have people who have to serve certain thematic purposes and people who are supposed to represent certain philosophical ideas, and if they do those things, they're serving their purpose as quote-unquote characters in, in a Malick world. And I feel like 
what Shane Carruth is getting at throughout Upstream Color is this idea of emotional connection and the idea of a shared history and, and the way that a relationship can both save and I think in some instances destroy the individual. Um, and so I think they may not actually resonate very well as separate characters. I could agree with that, but I feel like I understand their connection incredibly well. And I was really deeply invested in, in their connection. And I think that's what Upstream Color is sort of exploring is the idea of connection, the way that these connections can be better and worse for the people involved in them. Connection. Yay. Um, I think it'll be easier to talk about this when we can talk about spoilers. So at this point, if you have not seen Upstream Color and you want to, and you don't want to be spoiled on it when you see it, skip ahead or come back next week. Uh, thanks for listening. Now, Sam, the gloves are off. You can talk about whatever spoilers you would like. First of all, is Rachel still on? Rachel is still around. She's just being quiet, right? She left. She went to go drink. No, she's there. I'm here. I'm just, yeah, but you can, I, I won't listen. Yeah, don't listen. I'll let you know when you can come around and announce your pick for the next movie, Rach. Okay. Uh, yeah, take your headphones out, and I'll, I don't know, I will... She doesn't really have headphones, though, I thought. She has to just run away from the computer. Okay, run away, but then, okay, then I'll text you. I don't know, just... <laughs> whatever, Sam, gloves are off. Way to go, Rach. Um, I thought, like, I thought... Um, in terms of the, the plot of the movie, like the, like, the central idea of the movie was really, really interesting, and having, like... Just like the mechanics of it, I thought were interesting of the plot because it, it did remind me of Primer. And I think Shane Carruth is really good at coming up with these really original uh, takes for science fiction. Um, having like this, these drug, I guess, I don't know if they're drug infused, but these larvae that, you know, kind of put you in this trance so this one guy can just take advantage of you. I thought it was really interesting and in how. Just how like everything connected in the movie with through this thing and the resolution with like finding everybody, it kind of reminded me of uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, the thing is, like, I just I couldn't get past the characters because, like you said, it's just like their themes. They're not people. They're ideas. Is this a thing that bothered you? In you've seen? I don't. Have you seen To the Wonder? No. Uh, to the Wonder actually. I saw To the Wonder and Upstream Color basically like within a few days of each other, and I think that might be one reason why I think I'm thinking Malik a lot when I talk about this movie, um, because they're they're similar in a lot of ways. But you've seen Tree of Life, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain are not characters in that movie, but I think it works for what Tree of Life is trying to do. I think they are characters, though. I feel like they are the state of nature and the state of grace. Like they are they are exactly what Malik lays out. They are the two worldviews who are trying to shape the child to be more like themselves. I mean, I guess. And I don't I don't, I don't think of that necessarily as a problem. I mean, in certain types of movies, having a person represent only an idea and not really work as a person would bother me. But I feel like in what Malik does and in what Caruth is doing, at least in Upstream Color, I think it's, you know, it's it's more an exploration of an idea and a feeling than than necessarily a narrative. And that's why also the sort of elliptical plot mechanics of it don't particularly bother me because I feel like the plot of this movie is beside the point. I mean, it's a really dense plot, and it's really, I think, interesting, but it's not what I liked about the movie. Yeah, I mean, I just, I never felt like a connection to these people, even though this movie's all about feeling a connection to people. Um, because ultimately, I didn't care about either one of them at the end of the day. Um, 
I did think it was like just an interesting movie to watch. And I, I felt I was like gripped by the whole thing. But when I was done with it, I'm like, oh, OK, that was nice. The pigs. <laughs> they're, they're all connected to the pigs. And I'm also wondering if those pigs die. Are they dead? You know, uh, my guess would be no, but I don't know. And I feel like watching the movie several more times probably wouldn't give me an answer. Because I feel like, you know, when, like, the guy threw his, the, their piglets over, I mean, they felt that. They, like, physically felt that. Yeah. So, and I imagine, you know, if this guy, like, killed the pig versions of them, they'd probably die, too. Because they're actually, like, they're physically linked. I guess that's true. Maybe they would die. Um, I don't know how long pigs live, Jordan. I loved, <laughs> I loved, I, someone, uh... I forget. I think it was Nathan Raven, but someone tweeted that this was the weirdest prequel to Babe imaginable, <laughs> and I thought that was an excellent observation. That's funny. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't disagree with your with the problems you have with the movie. They just weren't as big a problems for me because I was more emotionally invested in the characters, and that's. I mean. We could talk about the way that the movie works and doesn't work in terms of us getting emotionally invested in the characters, but I feel like ultimately that might be just be a personal difference. Well, I think the thing is, it's like, that's what it's all wrapped up in, you know? Mm -hmm. That's what the movie's banking on. And it's like, if you if you feel for these characters in their connection with each other, that's like the heart of the movie, ultimately. So, you know? what I love, one thing I love that we uh, couldn't talk about before we got into spoilers, but I love the way that these two become connected and sort of subsume each other to the point where they're they're not able to tell what which memories right. are their own and which memories are each other's, what happened to either one of them or together what happened to them. I loved that because I feel like it was such a... Even though it was doing it in a sort of abstract way, it was such a resonant uh, sort of metaphor for the way that relationships can sort of take over your life. Uh, and I loved that moment. I loved that. Really... I think another thing that might have, I don't know if this annoyed you, but something that I felt a lot throughout the movie was that like a lot of its sequences work as really great short films that are sort of thematically connected and work and the short films then in turn work in a giant loop as a movie. Um, and I think that maybe some of the short films are uh, some, you know, some of the sequences in it rather were more effective than others for me, but I just sort of got caught up in the flow of this movie and, and it carried me along throughout all of it. And you, you did not get caught up in the movie, which is understandable. Well, I feel like I, I got caught up in it, but I was also like kind of just frustrated by the movie a lot um, because I feel like I, I was spending time trying to figure out the plot when I probably just should have just like sat back and let the movie happen. And at a certain point, I'm just like, I'm not going to figure this out. I'll just watch. Um, and then it turned out by the time, you know, I finished with the movie, I'm like, oh, this all does kind of make sense. Uh, um yeah, I, I've still only seen it once. I saw it uh, when it was in theaters, um, so it's been a while. But I I do want to watch it again, but my, my feeling was on it was that the, the plot was sort of irrelevant, and you you just, if you could just sit back and let the movie happen to you, then I, I that's how I really enjoyed it. So maybe if you go back and watch it again, try that, and you might enjoy it more. Um, I think we can wrap up, because we need to have Rachel announce now. Um, Rachel, if you're hearing this, announce. Otherwise, I'm going to contact you so you come back to announce. Um, any last thoughts, Sam, while we get Rachel? Ah, she's coming back. Nope. Cool. So I loved Upstream Color. It's probably one of my favorite movies of the year, um, though we'll see when the year end comes. Sam, you thought it was okay. Would you recommend that people see it? Yes, definitely. 
All right, so we both say see upstream color. With that, Rachel, please announce our next pick for Name Movie Club. Okay, also, I'm going in what appears to be a radically different direction. Um, and so my pick for the next Name Movie Club is Friends with Kids from 2011, starring Adam Scott, Jennifer Westfeld, Maya Rudolph, Chris O'Dowd, Kristen Wiig, and John Hamm. Um, mostly because I feel like over the last two weeks, every conversation I have is about somebody I know getting married or having a child. So I hope everybody enjoys it and we'll see how it goes. Excellent. So as usual, we will be doing, uh, roughly three or four weeks from now, we will be talking about friends with kids. It is on watch instantly, correct, Rachel? Yes, it is. So you can watch it on Netflix, watch instantly. I imagine you can watch it in a number of other places if you would prefer, um, but check it out within the next month and we will talk about it for now, closing down the old movie club and it's time to announce the winner of the Rachel Tardiff Memorial Award for best performance in the week. Uh, so with as little fanfare as possible, as always, it was a tight race. There were a lot of votes coming in, uh, and the winner of the Rachel Tardiff Memorial Award for best performance in the week is Paul Giamatti, an actor we all like. He's going to be <laughs> a TV show we like. Congratulations, Paul. Come on down to the renamed offices, please, to collect your trophy and small cash prize and to get a firm handshake from all of us who are big fans of your work. Um, congratulations. And with that, I have been Jordan. This has been the Review Be Named podcast. And I have to apologize. I was born with a disfigurement where my head is made of the same material as the sun. <laughs> <laughs>